Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Bluff City Church, Memphis, Tennessee. We have a little bit of a gift for you this morning. Uh, I am not preaching, and uh, sometimes I sit down to write a sermon, and nothing good is coming out of the process. And I don't know if that's because I've written too many in a row, or my heart's not in the right place, or my head is just not in the right place. And so I was lamenting it, and then I realized I have somebody on staff who can preach a sermon. And I really do think that maybe there was some Holy Spirit in that, because when she sent me the rough draft of this sermon to look over, it's fire. It's really good. She's going to be awesome. And I don't know what that look was about. She's always giving me these looks. Um, So anyway, I want to, uh, would you welcome Paige? Uh, I think this is Paige's first sermon live. Am I correct? Yes. She did one online for us months ago, but this is her first time ever preaching in front of people. So you all make sure you give good facial expressions and feedback. Is it on? Okay, great. Uh, Yeah, like Tom said, this is my first time ever preaching. So while this is just a normal Sunday for you, um, this will be ingrained in my memory forever. So thank you for being here. Uh, If you are a guest, we are so glad that you're here. Um, Normally, I don't preach. You heard that. So if you're like, what is going on? Come back next week. That's my encouragement to you. Um, (laughs) If you come here every Sunday, we are so glad that you're here. We're so glad to be with you, to worship with you, and that you get to listen in on something I put a lot of my heart into. So thank you. Um, I shared with Aslan a few weeks ago, so I'm glad you're here, Aslan, uh, that I get panic attacks on Saturday nights. I get what I call the Sunday scaries. So some people have the Monday scaries where they have to go back to work. I have the Sunday scaries um, where I have to come to church because for a long time, walking into church was attached with these negative emotions, right? I had to hide parts of who I was. I felt shame for being who I was. Um, And my body knew something that I didn't know at the time, and it associated with shame, fear, anxiety. So again, I call it the Sunday scaries. Uh, And so um, I went to counseling, thank God. I will talk about my counselor, Mandy, a lot. She is one of my favorite people. I tweet about her a lot, too. Um, If she knew about that, she'd probably be embarrassed, but let's not tell her. Uh, I'm not going to let her listen to this, so unless you do, Mandy, which, glad you're here. Um, Again, my therapist and I have been working through these experiences of trauma that have kind of led to these feelings of anxiety and shame. And when I first started, I sat down. You only get like 50 minutes to talk. And I went through all of these lists of things. I was like, we need to talk about this, 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 and this. And she's like, okay, so you have a lot here. Why don't you go home? I'm going to give you some homework. I love homework. I was an A-plus student. Absolutely love homework. You get homework as an adult now? I'm like, yes, sign me up. Um, So she gave me some homework, and I wrote a letter, right? It was a letter to all of the previous churches that I have experienced sort of some kind of pain and trauma with. And I wrote it two years ago, put it away, didn't look at it. And then as I got to the sermon, I thought, well, I guess now's a good time to revisit it. So um, apart from Mandy and myself and my best friend who did edit my sermon because I'm horrible at grammar, you guys are the first ones to hear this letter. So I am nervous and also excited to share it with you. So to the churches that raised me, formed me, and scarred me. You've heard it said, it's not you, it's me, but I'm here to tell you it 100% was you. Uh, You've heard it said, and you preach to yourself, that women have no place in the pulpit. But here I stand today for the first time, 
confident in me being in this place and that it is, in fact, good. <laughs> um, you, in the past, have covered up scandals. You silenced women. You decided that your reputation was more important than the truth. There were moments where you thanked me for not being an angry feminist, and you created spaces that were only accessible to men, and you a lot of times whitewashed the Bible. You squashed questions, left no room for doubt or curiosity, and you asked me to pledge allegiance to a God who only blesses America. You said, hate the sin, love the sinner, but simultaneously dismissed any innate goodness in people who were different from you. And so I write, may God be gracious to you for the scars you have inflicted on many in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's been two years worth of therapy unpacking. Um, it's been hard, but it's been good to sit down and name those things. And so I'll say, this letter was written in the height of my deconstruction, the height of my bitterness, my anger, the moments in which I thought, I don't know if there is anything good left for me in my faith journey. So it was written after I realized that the church had failed me and was truly questioning, what is next? What is next for me? This letter allowed me to sit with my resentment and bitterness that had been growing inside of me, and this letter reminded me that my frustration was deep and my hurt was deeper. But I will say that this letter was also the first step, along with counseling, to healing, forgiveness, and peace that was to come. I was able to sit with my pain and memories and be reminded that bitterness was not the end goal. If I were to have gone through all of that pain, all of that questioning, and I was only left with the feeling of bitterness, like, what? Um, I, I give up. There's no joy in that. There's no pain in that. There's no hope in that. Um, and so it was a good reminder that bitterness is not the end. There is more to come. And so as I began my journey of healing, which luckily for me, uh, the Bible, Scripture, my counselor had a lot to say about those things, I looked to the life of Jesus and found myself really encouraged. Because apparently, he has a lot to say about pain, healing, and trauma. So in our reading today, we read 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I'm going to focus on this verse right here. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. This line might seem like a throwaway line when someone sends you an email and they're like, I hope this email finds you well. And you're like, no, you don't. But thank you for sending it Friday at 5 p.m. Um, yeah, it might seem like a throwaway line, something you can just skim by. But I think as I was writing this sermon, I was really encouraged by the wisdom and the intentionality that is found just in the word thankful or thanks. This simple sentence has been truly transforming my response to my own trauma. Paul's use of the word thankful here is intentional, it is thoughtful, and it provides a foundation for us as we move through the process of deconstructing our faith and our trauma. I'm also not normally one to Greek out or to geek out on Greek. Uh, I did take Greek in seminary, got an A. Again, I want to brag about those accomplishments. It was really hard. Um, but once I got through that class, I thought, I'm never going to use this ever again. And then I started working on this sermon, and I was like, oh, wait, this is kind of cool. Um, I'm not this nerdy normally, I promise, but this I thought was important. So the word here for thank is uh, the word eucristo, which is where we get the word eucharist from. Um, eucharist, as we know, communion, as we call it sometimes, uh, is the practice of thanksgiving in which we remember the painful trauma inflicted on Jesus for the sake of the world. 
The Eucharist is this act of remembrance of the betrayal and death of Jesus in which the entire church is unified. I was re- doing some reading about the Eucharist and every Wikipedia page. Uh, I don't only use Wikipedia. I know it's a, not a great source, but today I did. Um, they were like, Christians don't agree on much, but they do agree that the Eucharist is important. And I was like, oh, all right, that's, that's a win. Uh, so again, the church is pretty unified in the fact that the Eucharist is significant to the life of the church. It's not merely this subjective recalling to mind, but an active manifestation of the continuing and actual significance of the death of Christ. And so, all that to say, I love that Paul used this word to say thankful. He could have used several other words. I'm not geeky enough to know what those Greek words are. I just know this word. So <clears throat> if my Greek professor's watching this, Dr. Brookins, you did a great job. Um, so again, Paul says that he is thankful. He is Eucharisto for the Church of Corinth. And you see, Paul had a complicated relationship with the Church of Corinth. When we read in Acts 18 about the account of the founding of Corinth, we're like, oh, they're in great relationship standing. Like, this seems fine. Uh, he founded the church. They like him. They support him. They cheer him on. Great. All things are great. However, when we get later into Scripture, um, we realize that he writes the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a few years later. It's in 55 AD. And we're like, what happened? There seems to be some drama. And normally I'm one who loves the drama, um, love, love reading about the tea, as some people call it. Me, I call it that. So, uh, but, <laughs> but in this account, we realize that there is a change in leadership in the Church of Corinth. So at once they're really supportive of him. They're like, we love what you're doing. We're so thankful for you. And now there's this change in leadership and then there's this shift altogether in the attitude. Like, we don't like him, we don't trust his authority, we don't respect what he's doing in his ministry. And so Paul has to sit down, knowing that they have said all of these things about him, and write them a letter, because he has a duty and a diligence to speak words of wisdom to people who don't like him. And so he sits down, he writes this letter, after experiencing what I would consider pain and trauma, and he says, I always thank my God for you. Why? Like, I, why? That is the question I sat with as I read this. Why? How? How can he come to this point where he can say that meaningfully? And I think it's because, as we look at the word Eucharist that he uses, it's because the death of Jesus reminds us that the act of dying on a cross was for everyone because Jesus knew the value of humanity. So I just watched The Good Place. Uh, shout out to Tom um, and my girlfriend. She's going to watch this later, and it's very important that I say she did also tell me to watch that. Um, <laughs> and the part that I found incredibly interesting, I would like to say I did binge it in two days, so I watched all four seasons two days, uh, really committed to it, and it was good. So if you haven't seen it, watch it. But the part that I was like, wow, this is interesting, is that the judge, who's easily one of my favorite actresses of all time, she's very funny, witty, she has a sarcastic personality. I'm like, if I had any role, I would want that one. Um, she is so quick to be like, well, it's not working, start over. The humans, they're not great anyway. They've come out with like electronic disco music. Like we could just start over, press the reset button. It's fine. We're not going to miss them. Um, and I was really taken aback by that. I was like, oh, that's interesting that she was so quick to throw away with humanity, right? Press the reset button. We'll start over. These people mean nothing to me. Um, but I think that juxtaposition to the story of Jesus is really important because here, the life of Jesus teaches us God doesn't want to start over. 
right? He's not pressing the reset button on us because we created something like EDM, um, which I'm not even really sure what that is, but I hear it's horrible. So electronic disco music, yeah. Well, I'll maybe, we'll listen to it later. Hopefully it's good. <laughs> um, all right, let's, let me recalibrate. And I think this idea that we can start over, throw away, um, recalibrate is the attitude we take with people ourselves, right? We're like, this, this person serves me no good. Um, they have done X, Y, Z, so I'm just going to start over. And by start over, I mean cut them off. They no longer exist to me, and that is the end of the story. And that could be the end of the story with Jesus, right? We know that in the idea of God, or not the idea, the person of God, um, he is all-powerful, all-knowing. He has the ability to do things like that, but he doesn't, right? The life of Jesus, um, the act of the cross, reminds us of the goodness of our existence and the hope that he has for us to pursue lives of love. He didn't start over because he knows that we matter. He knows that human life is significant, and he sees the potential of all humanity. So as we tie together the theme of deconstruction and the letter of 1 Corinthians, the line that kept playing through my mind as I read through this, um, what I would call the big idea, is that choosing love and embracing harmony means that we have the ability to say, I'm glad that you exist. So Tom discussed um, the four stages of faith that Brian McLaren talks about in uh, his book, Faith After Doubt. Specifically, the third and the fourth stage is perplexity, what we know as deconstruction, and then the fourth stage is harmony. So as we move through this series of deconstruction, and as maybe you sit with feelings of bitterness and resentment towards the church or towards people within the church that have caused you pain, I think it's helpful to have the end goal in mind, right? To be reminded that bitterness is not the end, that there is something that we are striving for, that God is working within us, and that is harmony. McLaren encourages us further to hang in there and trust the process of perplexity, and it will become a passageway or a birth canal to harmony. And I believe the reason we ask these questions in the stage of perplexity and the process of deconstruction is to come out on the other side with a more thoughtful and developed understanding of what it means to exist in an imperfect world, what it means to love well, to pursue harmony, and to have hope. We sit with our trauma, the failures of the church, and we say that there must be another way, another ethic that can lead us to love deeper, an ethic that allows us to look at those around us without hardened hearts and say, I'm glad that you exist. When I first heard this phrase, I'm glad that you exist, uh, I will admit that it was on a TikTok video. Sam did almost give me a lecture last night on how TikTok is not good, and I will uh, say I, I do acknowledge that there is probably not a lot of goodness in TikTok, but this was one of the nuggets of truth that I really liked. So in this video, a female therapist is sitting with her fake client, and she is recounting a story of a therapy session, and she says, I cannot begin to tell you the power that these words have when counseling people. And then she says, I am glad that you exist. Right? She says, these words have so much power when you are talking to an individual who doesn't feel as though anyone is glad they exist. And as someone who struggled with mental health, um, and who's actively in therapy, I can attest that these words have carried a profound significance for me. And maybe it's because I grew up with the understanding that there was nothing good in me. There are parts of my personhood that were fundamentally offensive and abhorrent to God. And these were messages I received from some of the people around me in my church. And these messages did not 
make me feel that God or others could be glad that I existed. The bigotry, racism, sexism, and other harmful ideas that are wielded by some in the church communicate that we are not glad that everyone exists, but only those who look and act the way we want them to. It's important for me at this point to make something very clear. Um, what I'm not trying to communicate this morning, and I'm not, uh, what I'm not trying to say is that we should overcorrect and have the pendulum swing so far in the other direction that we end up dismissing deep harm, oppression, or hurt that has been afflicted by others. This week on Twitter, uh, Dante Stewart, who I love, he has a lot of good tweets, said, it is incredibly dishonest and unloving to ask people who have been harmed in a society to compromise with people who do not love them, deny their full humanity, and support policies that continue to scream at them, your life does not matter. And I would believe Paul agrees with these words. I do not believe that Paul would say, or Jesus would say, that we should ignore and let, leave these things unaddressed. The whole of scripture, the whole of the Bible contradicts this. In fact, as we're told again, we are to seek justice for and care for those who are mistreated, marginalized, and maligned. We can see all of this in the simple command to love our neighbors. Now, what I am saying is that there is great worth in affirming the inherent value of another person as an image bearer of God, and in recognizing that they too are our neighbor. We can do this even as we also address the ways this person has harmed others. In this verse, Paul is telling the church of Corinth, but to, before I talk about any moral failures or address the pain that you've caused, I must first state that I'm glad you exist. As Christians, we have an ethic that says, I believe all human life is significant. This is the story of Jonah. This is, this is the gift of prophecy. This is the ethic of Jesus. This is a story of the Bible, that despite our many failures, God is glad that we exist. Now, we should not silently and passively allow oppressors to continue to cause fundamental harm to others. We do not simply say, we're glad that you exist, and we walk away. The reason we celebrate the existence of others is because we believe, like Jesus believed, that change is possible, and that there is nothing that cannot be redeemed. We believe that by showing love, the power of love can transform. I believe Thomas said this before, or I think it was his, he was quoting his friend J.R., um, but the gift and the importance of prophecy is that if you're hearing it, it's not too late, right? This is the significance of prophecy. Prophecy is God reminding humanity that he sees the value and potential in, in humanity. As Ezekiel 33:11 says, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. If love as we know it is willing the good for another, then love means affirming the image of God in others, even the ones we disagree with, in order that we might embrace and that they might embrace a life that is more loving. Love means looking at the ones that have hurt us, the ones that have at times failed to love others well and still saying, I am glad that you exist. Love is looking at the church, the universal, and our own local congregations and saying, still, we are glad that you exist. We do not condone the hurt and oppression that have come from you, but if I cannot first affirm the goodness and truth of your existence as a child of God, I cannot speak God's love into this situation. I think this is why the principle of affirmation and honesty is part of why counseling is so effective. 
and even life-changing, right? I've been with Mandy again for two years. Um, I talked about her a lot this sermon. I was not expecting that, but Mandy, great job. Uh, she's easily one of my favorite people, and my experience with therapy is that your therapist is able to counsel you because no matter who you are or what you're doing, their job is to keep you alive, to affirm your value as a person, and to walk alongside you through your trauma. In order to provide guidance, support, and care, your counselor is constantly affirming the goodness and the potential, as well as the value of your life as they push you to be the best version of yourself. Mandy especially has given me the ability to see life not in black and white, not to see people as good or bad, um, but to see people as individuals with complicated stories and their own hurts and struggles. As she often says, hurt people hurt people. Her constant challenge to me is to step outside of myself and to see a fuller story filled with people whose lives God is still thankful for, no matter who they are. So in order for us to be a loving community, we must understand that hurt people hurt people. We must remember that grace, we must remember with grace and make room for the unique lives of others, the pain that they themselves have experienced and the ways in which that pain has shaped them. We must have an ethic of love that urges us to say, I'm glad that you exist. At the beginning of this sermon, I wrote a letter to the churches that had harmed me, or I recited the letter that I had written two years ago. And in the spirit of this sermon, I am going to readdress that in the spirit of grace and remembering rightly. To the churches that have raised me, formed me, and taught me the goodness of grace, I thank my God always in remembering you, for I am glad that you exist. My prayer is that God might instill within you a desire to dig deeper, to love harder, and to hear the voices on the margin that speak to you. May I remember my time there with grace for my wrongdoers. I know that you are hurting people operating in a system of hurt, and my hope is that power does not blind you to the hurt of others and that money does not keep you from doing the right and just thing. I forgive you for the scars that my time with you gave me, I forgive you for the pain and the tears that are shed. I forgive you for the moments in which you made me feel as though my existence was a mistake. May God give you ears to hear the words of those who you have hurt in order that you might repent. Amen. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we will close. God, I thank you for this morning and the significance that it will forever have in my life. Um, I thank you for the words in which you are teaching me, God, to celebrate the existence of another person, to celebrate the existence of those who have hurt me. Because, God, we know that the ethic that you have instilled within us is love. And so I pray that as we sit with these words, um, we maybe still sit with feelings of bitterness and resentment, God, that we know that all of these things are leading us to love deeper. And send your name we pray. Amen.